Thanks for tuning in to McNamara on Money, a podcast about all things financial. On this show, we talk about investments and investment performance. In our practice, we give financial advice to our clients. We know their financial situation in detail before doing so. That's not the case with callers we may speak to on this show. We can't give truly meaningful financial advice because we don't know the detailed financial situation of the caller. Any suggestions we make to callers are generic in nature and meant to steer a caller in the right direction. Listeners to this podcast need to check with their own financial professionals before implementing any suggestions that we may make. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined this morning by my brother and business partner, Justin McNamara. Good morning. Good morning. Happy weekend, everyone. We are here this morning. We're going to chat about front-loading savings. I was going to say retirement accounts, but we could really apply this to many different savings strategies. We're going to talk about the benefits, the reasons, and talk through the pros and cons of saving early and what we're calling front loading. And we did this show two or three years ago, we did a very similar show and I thought it was interesting and something to bring up again. And I think one of the first things, or one of the, one of the things we talked about is this is much easier said than done, but (laughs) point we can talk through some ideas and things like that. But there are people out there that are very motivated and have the ability to do this and higher income earning earlier in life. And maybe information like this, Uh, One of our goals here today is just to get out information like this so people can think about it and maybe use it as a source of motivation to save early. Yeah, I think you hear hear save early all the time. And we're going to try to, I think we'll just talk through some of the details of it and try to put some numbers to, oh, this is why you would save early and just give some real world examples and talk about some experiences that we've had, I think, along the way. Yeah. So to get into it, I thought it would be important to start with the concept of compounding interest, because that's like the backing of this strategy, really, that the ability for portfolios to earn money over long periods of time, not guaranteed, but we the concept of compounding is really what makes this strategy the most powerful. And so I thought we should start with that and go through some examples uh, to help people understand why we talk about save early. Right. Because time, is, you and I know time is it's easier to save over a long period of time because of this phenomenon or whatever. What's the word of compounding interest? This thing that exists of compounding interest. Yeah, magic of compounding interest. Okay, I like it. Yeah, I think it just, I think we should set the stage. It is hard to do early, right? Just the way that a person's life works out is generally speaking, you are, you don't make as much money as a younger person. And as right. we're going to demonstrate here in a minute, the the real magic of compounding interest is that the longer you do it, the more valuable it is. But then all of a sudden you get put in the position of, oh, that's great. If I started saving when I was when I was zero, it would be it'd be really easy to do. But, but you have no money when you're zero. <laughs> not to have any money until their, their peak earning years don't start usually until sometimes in your 30s. Obviously, it depends on your individual situation. There's plenty of 20 year olds who are who have plenty of discretionary income. I think that's we'll acknowledge up front that's going to be the case that it's hard. But we're going to try to make the case that you should do your best to do it based on the outcome for you. Okay. So just some simple examples. We've done this on the show before, but just playing around with some savings calculators, which people can find online. Literally, if you just Google savings calculator, probably a dozen of them or a million of them pop up on Google search. So just quick examples. I'm assuming that someone has no money. I have to put a dollar amount. So I put literally $1 for starting balance. 
And then I'm doing a thousand dollar per month contribution. Yep. And I'm going to do that first. First of all, I'm going to do it over five years. And I'm going to, we can play around with portfolio earnings, but for now I'm going to use 7% per year. All right. Which is maybe consistent with a moderately aggressive strategy, not something overly conservative, but probably not something overly aggressive either. So if you save $1,000 per month over five years, you're putting away $60,000 of your own money. And if the portfolio can earn 7% per year, five years later, you have about $71,000. So you have put away $60,000 of your own dollars and your earnings were $11,000. Okay. Sounds okay. Okay. So what is the way to un- way to help people understand how compounding is powerful is to stretch this out over longer periods of time. So if you do the same $1,000 per month over 10 years, you're of course adding more of your own money to this investment account. So now you're adding $120,000 yep. over the 10-year period of time, same $1,000 a month. But now and same 7% per year assumed earnings on the account, but now your total balance is 171,000. So the earnings from the portfolio are now $51,000. So in the price, so this is only, so this is twice as much time. We went from five years to 10 years. Yeah. So twice as much money, but the earnings are five times as much. And this, and it just gets more and more powerful from here because this is, first of all, we'll talk through this a little bit more, but larger, larger, the larger the account gets, the more it can earn in terms of dollar amounts. So that's helping with the the further growth of the investment, but also this concept of compounding interest or compounding earnings is not only is uh, over time, the more time you have, not only is the money that you put in earning interest, but right. or but also then your interest is earning interest and then that interest is earning interest. So that's really what the compounding is. And so if I just go one step further, let me again, double the period of time to 20 years, All right. so same thousand dollars a month over 20 years, same 7% assumed earnings. Yep. So again, so this person is putting away $240,000, which is $1,000 a month over 20 years. But if they can earn 7% per year on average, they now have over $500,000, which means the portfolio itself in this example would have generated about $260,000, which is now, so we went from 10 years to 20 years. So twice as long, twice as much money, but again, it's four times as much earnings Right. in this example, of course, not guaranteed. This is just an example, but it's not all that unrealistic for someone in a certain moderate or moderately aggressive investment strategy. So this is where like the power of time and the power of compounding is pretty awesome, I think. And I could just keep going. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think we should, you should play it out a little bit because the A... Folks do, hopefully everyone out there listening has a has a long investing lifespan, right? Hopefully you're investing from the time that you're in your 20s-ish until, until the day that you die, which we hope is a very long time. And so I think it does make sense to pull, at least go out a few more, maybe a few more decades here just to really illustrate the point. Because if you ever look back at those um, 
stock market charts, right? You have to change mm-hmm. scale of the chart, right? If you're looking at a chart from 26, back when we started to have good investing data, the chart gets so out of whack with regard to the compounding earnings that you have to actually change the scale of the chart because it would just wow. look like it's going, eventually it would look like it's going straight up, right? So over um, long periods of time, it's really powerful. And so I think you should, you know, let's do a few more decades going. just to really illustrate the point. I know I maybe we're beating it to death here a bit, but some folks who are, if you're going to be starting saving when you're 25 and retire at 65, that's 40 years. Right. So we should, let's keep going. So double it again. So go from yep. 20 years to 40. Sure. Okay. So when we went from five years to 10 years, yep. our earnings went from $11,000 to $50,000. Yep. We went from 10 years to 20 years. Earnings went from yeah. $50,000 to $267,000. Yeah. If we go from 20 years to 40 years, we'll double it again. Same $1,000 a month, same assumed 7% per year earning. This person puts away 480000 of their own dollars, which is a lot of money, of course, over yeah. 40 years. Interest earned almost $2 million in this example. Yeah, that's incredible. So, so future balance is so this person put away 480,000 total ba- account balance at the end of the 40 year period of time 2,471,000. So the interest it's just it's compounding it, it's so it's five times as much as you put in at the end of the 40 years period. Yeah. yeah. So going from so doubling the period of time from 20 to 40 years the earnings again about quadrupled. Yep. It was 200 and, no mo- I'm sorry more than that. It's a multiple yeah. of eight. We had to about 250,000 of earnings over 20 years. This is right. almost 2 million of earnings over 40 years, which is about eight times as much. So that's, yep. it's incredible to play around with these numbers. I also wanted to talk a little bit, use this opportunity to talk a little bit about risk and earnings potential because the earnings assumption that we're plugging in here is an important variable. Right. If we go back and we do this for someone who's a more conservative investor earlier in life, and I don't know that there's a lot of conservative investors right now that are on the young side. And I pulled some articles and we can talk about that a little bit. But let's say someone is starting earlier in life and saving a thousand dollars. And if they're going to do it over five years and they're not comfortable with a an aggressive or a moderately aggressive investment strategy, let's say they're doing something more conservative like CDs or a conservative investment strategy and they're only earning 4% per year. This is going to change the math quite a bit. Right. Oh, yeah. Five years at 1000 a month. Again, they put away 60000 Their earnings are now at 4% per year, only $6,000 instead of 11000 in our first example. Double that, we go out 10 years, 4% per year. $1,000 a month, they put away 120000 Now their earnings are about $26,000, not over 50000 like we saw right. in the first example. If we go out 40 years, let me just skip ahead a little bit. The person saving $1,000 a month who was taking some risk with their investment strategy and could earn 7% per year had, what was it, $2.5 million yeah. over 40 years. Someone investing 1000 a month over 40 years puts away the same $480,000. But if they're only earning 4% per year over 40 years, which is a conservative investment strategy, it's $1.16 million. So pretty big, di- a difference of almost a yeah. million dollars 
40 years later, I guess we could talk about present value and how the difference isn't really that much, but right. there, there is a difference, even if we factor out inflation. So yeah, I, I mean, did, go ahead. Yeah. Just, just to be clear. So if you, these are not talking about, we're not talking about real returns, right? So in returns over and above inflation, we're talking about nominal returns, which is just, Oh, I earned 7%. And if, if it's, if we just use the example of 2020, to right, if you had a portfolio and if you did good for you that earned six and a half percent last year, your real return was zero because inflation for 2022 was six and a half percent. Right, talking about just nominal returns and the actual dollars that you'll have in your portfolio, which is not factoring in purchasing power changes, but the actual the numbers they don't look as they don't look as impressive, right? I think we as an industry will use this as a teaching tool because we say, "Wow, look how much money you'd have, right? If you save a thousand dollars a month for 40 years." And earn seven percent, you can you'll have two and a half million dollars. It's fantastic. If you use real returns, it's it the numbers don't look as impressive, but they actually are when when you compare them to bank accounts, right? So if you're earning a very low rate of return, say you're in something short term or, or banks and CDs, you're probably not really earning anything over and above inflation. You may really speaking, very short term investments are very close to the inflation rate or maybe just a bit above it. And so you're almost earning nothing when you're conservative. And even if you fact even if your real return is only three or four percent, that's still a lot more than <laughs> a lot more than zero. It still works and it's still it, it's still an argument for Generally speaking, if you can afford, I guess not, well, financially afford and psychologically afford the, the volatility and the risk that comes along with being a bit more aggressive with your investment, you it, it still does make sense to do that, especially as a younger person. I did a little bit of, I tried to do a little bit of reading before the show regarding, in, to try to find statistics regarding which generations are comfortable slash uncomfortable with investment risk. Because I articles over the years, I yeah. feel like I've read... I can remember five or eight or maybe like even 10 years ago, reading articles about how millennials, for example, who of course, 10 years ago were, were 10 years younger than they are now, but who, that millennials were very uncomfortable with market risk. Yep. And if you think through that, it's okay. Millennials were what? 30 to 45 or something like that 10 years ago, like coming out of the credit crisis where we had really awful markets. So millennials right now are what, 40 to 55 or something like that. So 10 years ago, if millennials are like in the 30 to 45 age range and they see at a young age, a really awful stock market that lasted a long time, that took a long time to recover from, that sort of led them to be as a generation conservative with their right. investment strategies coming out of that. And I can remember yeah. reading articles about that five and five to 10 years ago, but it's sure. interesting how with time and changes in the market, that all changes. Because when I was doing some reading the last couple of days yeah. about millennials and their comfort level with risk and reading through some studies, it was the total opposite. And yeah. now it's millennials are very, Gen Z is very comfortable with risk. Gen millennials, Gen X are fairly comfortable with risk and investment strategies. In fact, it was something like one study said something like 45% of millennials have own cryptocurrency, which is the most volatile and <laughs> aggressive yeah. investment you can own. <laughs> and so it's just interesting how, how that changes. And you and I know risk tolerance for risk, comfort level with risk changes yep. with age, number one in, situ in life situation, but also just totally changes with markets.
an experience. Yeah. An experience. An experience. Yeah. yeah. And I guess, right. Experience comes from what's happening in the markets large. And the last coming out of the credit crisis, right after that, a lot of people would have described themselves as conservative investors because they didn't want to go through a market like we had in 08. They didn't want to go through that again. No, nobody wants to go through that with that has any sort of money in an investment strategy. But then the, the 10 years we had pretty much after that, or almost 13 years, actually, like leading up to 2022, we had pretty great markets, like great stock markets, and right. not a lot of scary times other than early in 2020, when we had a scary time, but a lot of investors didn't even know because if they weren't checking their balances, Every day, yeah. like a month went by and that market was so short and recovered, was recovered from within a couple months, few months, if people weren't checking their balances very frequently, which is a good thing, in my opinion, to not check frequently. They didn't even really notice that there was a bad market early in 2020. And so yeah. it's just interesting now that in the reading I'm doing, it's people, younger generations in particular, are very comfortable with investment risk, maybe like overly, yeah. but I don't think we're seeing <laughs> Well, that could of... change too, right? Yeah, I mean, we may be reading similar articles a year from now if the markets get worse, right? Yeah. I don't think it's not a, it's not a surprise to see that we know that individually people's right attitudes will change with the markets. And so it just makes sense that the collective would be the same way. Yeah. And I think it's when we talk about average, when we were doing these calculations to illustrate compounding interest, I was using 7% per year. I think a, a younger investor who's comfortable with risk, and hopefully many of them are comfortable with risk for retirement money anyway, if they might be, if you're very aggressive early in life in your 20s, 30s, and even 40s, perhaps you can likely out earn 7% per year. But if we're illustrating over a 40 year period of time, you might have higher earnings earlier in your earlier year, your younger years. And then as you approach retirement, many investors, many financial advisors might recommend, okay, lowering risk as you get closer to retirement, thus like at, on the tail end, right? Returns might be lower than 7% per year. So it's just, I think 7% is a good average over a 40 year period of time anyway, for someone like 25 to 65, sure. higher returns on the front end, lower returns on the back end. And to be clear, and I think we have to have this conversation a lot is, you know, everything's going to be relative, right? There, there'll be some folks who, you know, maybe if you were born in the 60s or 70s, your number may have been, or if you started investing in the 60s or 70s, maybe your number was 10% per year or even potentially higher, right? Because you have these great markets. And who knows, maybe if you start right now, the number will only be five or six. But the relativity is always probably more than likely always going to hold up for being aggressive versus conservative. It's There's probably not a whole lot of realistic projections that say, oh, the stock market is going to earn a 6% and so is a portfolio of cash. Is There's still going to be a relativity mm -hmm. that you, as a young person who can afford to take on financial risk, you'll more than likely get paid for it. Will you get the 7% that you know that you heard the lady talking on the radio about? I don't know. It could be higher, could be lower, but still probably worth it to at least shoot for higher returns when you're younger and can afford to. Yeah. And some of the reading I was doing about risk and generations, it was it was interesting in that like young generations, like Gen Z, for example, which I guess is, I don't know what Gen Z is like, what, 20 to 30 right now, something like that. They're, yeah, sounds like, yeah. Does that sound right? They're very, the most comfortable with risk. In fact, there was some, this one survey did some digging in terms of exact composition of investment portfolios. And like for older generations, composition was largely mutual funds, ETFs, cash, even CDs for some of their monies. But with like 
millennials and Gen Z, it was cryptocurrency, individual <laughs> stocks. It was yeah, like yeah. very little exposure to mutual funds. Even ETFs were, that was like low in terms of oh, really? exposure. It was lower than individual stocks for Gen Z and cryptocurrency. Yep. And I forget, and I think it was even lower than real estate for some of the younger generations. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, the individual stock seems, I guess it's so cheap to buy an individual stock now. And also if you're, it's less risky if you're in a, if you're a Robinhood account and you're investing $2,000 total in, in 10 stocks, it's, that wasn't really a thing when yeah, we were growing up. But. There's a there's a platform now to do it, a yeah. very easy platform that yeah. uh, the younger generations can use to easily trade stocks. Where generations ago it was, you got to call your broker. You call Mike McNamara. <laughs> you look at the paper to like find share prices and call your broker. So it's like a very cumbersome process, but it does make sense that it's more. And like we just talked about, it's yeah. been pretty easy to make money in stocks the last 10 to 12 years. So that those younger generations have grown up in their young adulthood in a period of time where it's been like no. No, no sweat, like making 10, 15, 20% on some of their stock investments. I don't, I don't think it will always be that easy. And hopefully they don't learn that the hard way. And hopefully they can learn and respect the value of diversification. But anyway, it's younger generations are definitely comfortable with risk and hopefully that pays off in the long term. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a break. We're going to get in. I want to get into translating a little bit more about front loading your portfolio and translating we talk a lot about rates of return in our world. I want to talk about dollars and really, which I think makes it more real when you talk actual dollars versus percentages in terms of rates of return. But we'll explain that after the break. We're talking about front loading your retirement savings or your savings or the benefits of saving early is really what we're talking about today. Easier said than done. And we acknowledge that, but I think the information is helpful and perhaps will serve as a source of motivation for people. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. Joined by my brother and business partner, Justin McNamara, today. We are just taking a quick break and we'll be right back. This is Mike McNamara. If you're looking for a financial advisor, start by asking him or her three questions. Number one, are you a certified financial planner practitioner? Number two, are you legally held to a fiduciary standard of care for your clients? And number three, do you only give financial advice and not sell investment products? These are all simple yes-no questions. If he or she doesn't answer yes quickly and starts talking, that's a no, and it's time to move on to another advisor. And we're back. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined this morning by my brother and business partner, Justin McNamara. Good morning. Good morning. You can check us out at McNamaraFinancial.com or McNamaraOfTheMerrimack.com. We have multiple offices. Yeah. And you can always, for people that miss the show or want to check out previous shows, you can check out our podcast, search McNamara on Money on your podcast app. We take all our shows and we Turn them into podcasts within a couple of days. Our podcast guy is pretty quick. He is pretty usually quick. available by Monday. Yeah, he's great. The other day I was listening to a podcast and it was you know, some sort of big, you know, maybe it was like a New York Times podcast. It was by famous people. I forget which one it was. And then the podcast ended and all of a sudden Kirk's voice popped in my ear and I was like, whoa, it, sounded, it just sounded so sounded so impressed. Yeah. York Times guy gets off and then immediately it's Kirk Reed talking in my ear. <laughs> we also sound better on the podcast because our podcast editor uses some software to edit out like ums and... Oh, does he really? Like yes. Yeah. Oh, so we try, we do the best we can live, but there I go again. What? But he cuts out... Yeah, there's software that where he can trim that out and make the podcast... Um, better quality and live, but pretty soon we'll just have an AI doing it and we won't even have to be here. Yeah. It'll, just, it'll, it'll be our voices. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? 
we'd have the weekends off. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're talking about front loading retirement savings and the benefits of that. So really what we're talking about is the benefits of trying to save harder earlier in life. It's harder to do in reality, of course, but we just wanted to talk through some of the benefits of that and maybe give some people yeah. some motivation and just explain, talk through some of the opportunities and just some of the things to think about. I, I think it's an interesting concept, but there are people out there that are on the younger side that are higher income earners, yeah. modest expenses, don't have families yet, for whatever reason, maybe didn't buy a house yet. And there are people out there with quite an ability to save earlier in life. And some of them just fall into it. Like they, they, land a job and they're making more than they need. And, but yeah. some of them, some people I've met and known throughout my life just are able to structure their lives in this way because they want to, they recognize the benefits of saving early and the financial security that they'll likely have later on if they can do this. So some of them structure their lives like this intentionally in terms of cut my expenses, try to grow my income, save a lot early. And some, but some people we meet are just like they just have modest expenses. Maybe they don't have kids. They just land these great jobs or just successful in their lives. And th there are people out there that that have ability to do this. And so hopefully we're not wasting our efforts here, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think so, just to, yeah. from a, from a kind of a, if you look at, if you look at the spectrum of jobs, I think a lot of the higher paying jobs, they tend to be higher in time. Like they tend to be more stressful. And I think we meet some folks, yeah, I don't know that we meet sure. them in their twenties, but we'll sometimes meet people in their thirties and forties and they seem to be doing very well. And we'll just hear things like, oh man, I don't think I can make it to 60 in this job yeah. because it's just, I think it's just natural that yeah. higher paying jobs would be more stressful. They, they require more from you. And there's a lot of people who are motivated to do those, but how long realistically, and I think we see some folks come in that are pretty honest about it. Oh, I'm not going to be able to do this when I'm, if you're, it's one thing doing yeah. a job when you're 35 and 40, and it's, it may be a very different thing doing that same grinding like that at age 60. And so I think we're going to, yeah. What? Cause your body gets old and like right. literally you don't have the energy to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. As you drink coffee, you're like, I know. Wait, Justin, I've only had two cups of coffee. I need a third. Give me a second. <laughs> My body can't keep up the way it used to. And so I think we're going to, we'll illustrate that as well. And I think one of the main points that we're going to make is it's just hard to retire early, especially if you're planning on living a long time. We have that discussion a fair bit. Oh, I want to yeah. retire at 60. And it's just, it's fairly difficult to do. And I think I want to we'll put some numbers to that a little bit later in the show. Yeah. But another reason to start early is you just don't, you may not know how you're going to feel about work at a certain age. Some folks will hear, oh yeah, I don't mind. I'm not, I'm never going to stop working, which is fine and great from a retirement planning point of view. But if you change your mind, you may find yourself a little. Yeah. And I find that the people who say that, I don't mind working indefinitely there. They either say that because they think they have to financially, like they think they haven't right. saved enough and maybe they haven't reserved to it. Yeah. 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 They're, yeah. They're just sort of, yeah, this is my life and this is what it will be. And I've made peace with it. Yeah. And I, but I think also other people say that when they're not in a high stress occupation, they're in something that they genuinely love and it's sure. lower stress and maybe they have good work-life balance already. And so they could envision doing that ind indefinitely. I would say the vast majority of people still look to, if not retire straight out, do something less stressful, which likely is less money that they enjoy. So think, right, like the vast majority of people that we meet in their 50s and 60s still envision yeah. some sort of retirement. 
Right. And yeah, anyway, these discussions are helpful for that. I wanted to talk a little bit about, and maybe this will only take two minutes, but I think it's important to talk about or translate earnings into dollars. We talk about percentages all the time in our world. Okay. Rate in terms of rates of return, right? Someone had this rate of return this year. And that's just normal for us. And when we present performance to clients, generally we're presenting in terms of rates of return. And when we quote, not guaranteed, but when we give what we think accounts can earn, different types of investment strategies, what do we think they can earn? We're always talking in rates of return. For this discussion, it's important to translate that into dollar amounts. So you can have, for example, a good rate of return in a given year would be 10%. Sure. And that's, we might be sitting in front of a client and say, here you go, you earned 10% that year, last year, this is great. But if that client has, if I have two back-to-back meetings and I'm showing client one a 10% per year rate of return and client one has $10,000, right? they earned $1,000 last year with that 10% return. Then my next meeting, I'm sitting with client two and they earned 10% last year and they have a million dollars. They earned $100,000 last year. And both of those people other than investing their money and hiring, I don't mean, I was going to say hiring us. I just mean working with an investment professional and having someone invest their money, not that you can't invest money on your own, but other than they essentially, those two clients essentially did nothing in that one year. Of course, client number two perhaps worked to accumulate the asset. I'm not saying they didn't do anything, but just I just think it's important to, for when we're talking about the importance or I shouldn't say importance, or the benefits of accumulating large amounts of money early in life, really the reason that it's all is because your portfolio can earn more in terms of real dollars if it's a bigger amount of money. And it doesn't really, it doesn't matter so much what the rate of return is. Like client two, in my example, could have earned 6% last year, and they still would have out-earned client one that are right. 10% because they had a larger balance to start with. So there's when it comes to accumulating money and building wealth, yep. there's two ways you do it. You save your money, you put actual money away, and or your money earns money. Yep. Other than that, the only other ways people accumulate wealth is they inherit, right? Yep. Or right. So either you take your actual money and you save it, and or your money earns money and or you inherit. Those are, am I missing anything? Those are like the only three ways you can build wealth. Right, except the lottery. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Gambling, yeah, sure. Let's, I guess we could say instead of an inheritance, a windfall, and that would include. Most people through their lives, the way they accumulate wealth is they just over time save money. And it's, of course, we've already touched on, it's easier to do that later in life when they're probably making more money than they're making when they're 20. And also like when you're 55, if you've had a family, right? Like most of the expenses are behind you by the time you're 55, you've raised your kids, you fed them, put them through all their sports, maybe helped them with college. By the time you're 55 or 60, that stuff's behind you. Couple that with the fact that you're making more money at that time. And so it's just easier to save, know that. And we meet people all the time that come in and they're like, I'm ready. Let's do this retirement thing. My kids are financially independent. <laughs> I'm making good money. My mortgage is small. And that's very 
and that's wonderful and it's very common and that's great. What's harder, of course, we already talked about is really trying to save earlier in life. But right. I went into our software and I, I put together a little scenario where we can really hammer this point home. Okay. So <clears throat> I have a person making, or let's call it a married couple, for example, making, now I forget my exact, it doesn't actually really matter how much they're making, but I have someone making, this is such a random number, $68,000 per year. <laughs> I don't know why it's okay. such a random amount. I don't <laughs> maybe know. you looked it up at some point. Maybe that was an average rate yeah, of return. Maybe, maybe that was an average salary for a, per, for a person in a certain yeah. age group. Okay. Fair enough. I have this person who's age 30 Okay, and he is making $68,000 per year and he has a 401k available to him. Okay, And I'm great. doing two examples. The first example is he puts 10% of his salary, gross salary, 68,000. So he's putting $6,800 a year into his 401k. We'll talk about the 10% rule a little bit. This is very common, et cetera, et cetera. We'll talk about that. And I'm assuming he gets a 4% employer match, which is not all that uncommon for employers to match roughly that amount, something in that range. So example one is I'm 30 years old. I'm going to do 10% per year and okay. I'm going to do that in this example. I have it for 30, 30 years until he retires. Okay. I'm assuming he retires at 60. All right. Good for Example two is I'm going to have him put away 20% of his salary. Okay. Right away, starting right when he's 30 and do that for only 15 years. Okay. He gets the same 4% employer match. Okay. For 15 is his, is his years. Is salary increasing? Yes. In this example, I do have his salary increasing. Okay. Inflationary. I, that's okay. pretty realistic. So like the amount is that he's putting in is going up okay. a little bit every year. Yep. So I wanted to, and I'm assuming the accounts are earning the same rate of return for the whole duration of this model. And I have 7% again. Yep. And what I'm doing is I'm, I did a little horse race, like which account Obviously, I did it like side by side. So which account gets bigger faster? But then I also wanted to see which account wins the race over 30 years. So for the, again, first example was 10% per year for 30 years. Second example is 20% per year for 15 years and then nothing. Okay. Okay. So he'll be investing, just to play this out in my head here, he'll be investing a bunch. He'll probably be investing more actual dollars in that second scenario because he is inflation from an inflation point of view he's he'll be earning more money in those second 15 years and thus contributing more money correct so i think it's okay correct. raw dollars it'll be a lot You're right the actual dollars will be a significantly higher although not necessarily inflation adjusted dollars here but we'll, well, i can't wait to see how it turns out so in the so right so the guy so 10 percent for life he's actually putting away more of his own money because later on with inflationary yeah he's putting away more money okay because his, his salary will probably hit double in about 20 years i would think or some somewhere right around, maybe, right maybe you're 20, right 25 years. i did the cost of living like a three percent growth on his salary okay right. yeah. okay so obvious so obviously the so if we're doing a little horse race like which account is getting bigger faster obviously the account where he's putting 20% in to start is bigger faster yeah. so 5 years later so this is $6800 a year is going into one account i'm sorry plus the 4% employer match i didn't do that match math but and yep. then a little bit less than 14000 per year is going into the second account so he's putting the 20% of his $68000 salary so obviously 
that the account that he's putting more into at the beginning gets bigger faster. So five years in, the account he's putting 20% into is not quite double, but almost double the size of the first one. He's got $113,000. How are you in. doing this? Did you? I, I'm using this? Navaplan. So I'm like, I actually had huh. two 401ks. Oh, for you're him, toggling right? back and forth. Okay, yeah, I was, yeah. I was and then I can see future values. Oh, cool. Obviously, the first one, the sorry, the second one where he's putting more in over a short period of time, that's winning the race at the beginning, of course. So yep. if we go 15 years out to the point in time where he's going to stop putting money, like he front loaded, right? Yeah. That, that In that second example, 20% is a good, healthy 401k contribution. So yep. he's sort of front loading early on. So 15 years out, the account that he's putting 20% into, if it can earn 7% per year, is about $567,000. Okay. And the one where he's the account where he's only putting the 10% per year, that's about $345,000. So okay. obviously, he's putting more into that second one. So that's winning the race. But now yeah. what we would examine is, okay, now in, in the first example where he's putting 10% per year, he's just going to keep doing that. Yeah. The second example where he's putting 20% in for 15 years, now we're going to stop. No more okay. contributions to that account, but it's still invested in earning money. Okay. And it's bigger. Yeah. So it's when so if they're earning 7%, that one that's bigger is earning more in terms of money money. So if I go then 5 years later, so now he's been saving for 20, the account that he's no longer contributing to is still much bigger. It's about 750,000. The other one he's still adding to at 10% is 575,000. Okay. And then five years after that. So now he's been saving for his 10% for 25 years and he yeah. hasn't added anything he, 15 years. And then he stopped. He hasn't had anything for 10 years, but it's still invested and in, you not know, guaranteed earning money at 7% still winning the race. It's a million dollars. The one that he stopped contributing to is a million dollars and his other one's still $900,000. It's, okay. And so I did, I tried to figure out, well, like what's the break even the break even is about 30 years. Okay. So it, is, so it takes him 30, 30. So an extra, you have to double the time frame in order to catch back yeah, up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And so th yeah. that's what we're talking about, like the power of front loading. Yeah. So in that example, if he was able to. Um, popular. Yeah. In that example. Podcast guy will edit that right now. <laughs> if he was able. So just like talking through some of the reality of that. Okay. For the first 15 years, making $68,000 a year, not a ton of money in this area of the world. It, yeah. Real estate's expensive where we live and in many areas. And so taking 20% of that for 15 years yeah. is not an easy task for many people. So, you know, not to, not to discount that, but then if he, in that example, he stopped and then didn't add anything to it for 15 years. So then thinking through what does that do for his cash flow and his ability to pay for right. other things in his life, whether it's a mortgage or then he has kids or whatever it is. I just think that's so interesting. And, and the reason that that works and that account that he stopped adding to wins the race for a long period of time is because what we just talked about, where earnings on that account in terms of the dollar amount of the earnings, there's a point where... There, there would come a point where the earnings on the account, the rate of return, not guaranteed, but if we're right. talking averages here, the earnings on the account would get to the point where they're more than what he would be putting in for his own dollars. And so if you can front load and grow your assets earlier and younger in life, the rate of return on like it can, the, your portfolio can really work for you 
in right. terms of growing by an amount that might even be more than what you could afford to put in out of your cash. Flow. And so that's, that's really, okay, we're done. We could end the show right now. Cause that's <laughs> like, we're really what we're trying to hammer home is that it's, again, it's hard to do, but if you can get your portfolio to the point where it's really working for you in terms of the dollar amount of the earnings, even in a moderate portfolio, it doesn't have to be like even overly aggressive. Um, but it can work for you and grow by a larger amount than you could grow it yourself. That that's just that's really cool. And it's again, of course, hard hard to do that. But yeah, I think you want to think about right. So one of the things that I think clients should get maybe get in the habit of doing is not looking at your nest egg as a that's how much I can spend. Because if you look at, especially now, right? And everyone, as we get older and now, now of course we're getting older and we look at our retirement plan balances and we say, whoa, that's a, that looks like a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. But then if you don't look at it instead of, oh, that's what I'm going to spend, it's, you have to look at it as, well, what can that generate for me? A million dollar portfolio seems like a lot of money. But if you, if it, but what you're really looking at is, oh, a million dollar portfolio, if I'm depending on when I retire, and I know we can talk about with safe withdrawal rates and all that good stuff, but a million dollar portfolio might only mean $40,000 a year in income to you. Mm-hmm. And then if you're looking at, if you look at it that way, it sounds obviously like a lot less, right? It's not all of a sudden my million dollars, which seems like this fantastical amount of money to some folks, mm-hmm. it's really just $40,000 a year. And I think that's the kind of the point that you were making is you need to look at you know, how much it's, how much the earnings are going to, how hard it's going to work for you yeah. and build that way and not say, oh, wow, I got, I have, I'm 35 and I have $200,000 in the bank and my savings. That sounds great. But as at that moment, it doesn't generate a whole heck of a lot of money in interest and it doesn't really help you. Your $100,000 portfolio, someone like me might say, oh, $100,000 is, you could buy a lot with it. But if you're retiring on it, it's only going to give you four or $5,000 a year. Right. It probably doesn't help a whole heck of a lot of folks. That's a good point. This is, if we talk through, I don't know if we want to do this now or like later in the show, but I was just sort of thinking through like the ways to do this. First of all, in order to save so save hard early in life, there are usually, unless you're just an extremely high income earner and have maybe don't have a family yet or maybe inherited money or whatever, it's hard to do that in terms of there are sacrifices you'd probably, most people would probably have to make lifestyle type choices. Right. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, elaborate on that a little bit, because I think a huge component of this discussion is real estate, purchase of real estate. Yep. And if you think about the ways that most people would, again, unless you inherit a sizable amount of money or are just a very high income earner earlier in life, most people would only be able to accomplish this by making making lifestyle choices that would free up ability to save beyond what most people could just normally save. And a big swing in terms of people's normal expenditures or one of the largest expenditures, I guess I would say people have is housing, right? And most people, I don't know about 20s, but like most people, once they get into their 30s, either are or want to be a homeowner versus a renter. Yep. It's just, I don't know, like the American way, or maybe that's related to what's available. I don't know, but I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. there's lots of, there's lots of things that in our society that kind of, that sort of pushed you in that direction, right? We have tax breaks and we have people, it's the people's largest investment in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I just, I thought, I don't know if we have, I don't know how much time minutes. we only have four minutes before the next break. So maybe we could at least start this discussion and then elaborate on a little bit, because this is yep. 
this one is even, I'm not totally prepared with like the perfect calculations with this one. I have ideas, but this one is just. It's difficult because, and I think the main, I think the main problem is that you, not everybody is using real home equity for the same reason, right? And we will, when we run a planning scenario, we put everyone's entire net worth in there. And if we looked at a net worth calculation of someone's life, there's generally, we have some reports that break it out, obviously. A lot of times there's home equity in there, but I would say the average client doesn't want to use their home equity, right? Mm-hmm. Even though everyone wants to own a nice house, right? And they want to, they want, we all want our houses to be worth $2 million, but when it comes time to actually using that asset, most people would prefer not to use it, right? From a retirement right. point of view, it's in most cases, it's just not something that clients don't say, oh yeah, reverse mortgage, perfect, sign me up. Yeah, or yeah. they, I'm going to downsize. And not that it doesn't happen and plenty of folks do it, but the average plan that we run does not involve someone saying, oh, I'm going to sell my my million and a half dollar place and I'm going to downsize to one that's 750 and I'm going to use all that money to fund my retirement. It's just not a really a use asset for most folks right. by preference, right? Yeah. Even I think second- that's what we, that's where you get in trouble. If you're going to spend a lot of money on that's, you have to invest in an expensive property. And then the return is maybe not something that you ever see. Right. That's a, yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. People recognize the value. They recognize the potential for growth in a piece of real estate because over lots right. of periods of times, real estate markets have been strong. Not always. They have ups and downs, too. But over, yeah. especially very recently, real estate went through a very significant growth period. So people de- re- definitely recognize the potential for growth in real estate. And usually that like a larger, more expensive piece of real estate. It would grow at a faster pace, generally in terms of actual dollar growth on the property than a smaller place. So people understand that, but that's actually a really good point that it almost doesn't matter because a lot, because most people don't use it, but it's just, that's actually, that's a yeah. really, that's even, a really good point even on their sec, even second residences. I find people don't really want to use that asset yeah. in retirement in terms of selling it. Many people with second residence residences in Florida and things like that really don't ever envision selling that or using it either. And even so. and sometimes it even goes to the next generation where, you know, someone like our father will buy a place in Fort Myers and then he'll make comments like, oh, I hope you guys get to use this for a long time. And so that now you're like two generations of home equity investment that might not that not that every kid has to hang on to the family vacation place, but yeah. even you might even push that onto the next generation where it's still not, a, it's then a use asset, but it's not necessarily a financial asset that helps with retirement. Yeah. Good point. All right. Let's go a little further on that in terms of pros and cons of purchasing okay. versus delaying purchase when it comes to ability to save early. Cause I think those are very interrelated. Yep. So we're just taking a quick break. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed, joined by my brother, Justin McNamara. We're talking about saving early, front-loading retirement savings today, power of compounding interest, et cetera, et cetera. Some ideas about maybe how to do this. We are just taking a quick break. We'll be right back. 